Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. Lord Jesus, we, God, we come before you this morning, and God, we acknowledge our need for you. God, I acknowledge my need for you. God, as I, as I wrestle with unbelief, God, you are our portion and our cup. Lord, whom have we in heaven but you? Lord, I pray that your word would, would sink into my heart, would sink into our hearts, and Lord, that we would worship you as we place ourselves before your loving, gracious voice, your presence. Amen. Amen. I just want to read this story. American doctor Beck Weathers, which is going to be ironically his name is Weathers. American doctor Beck Weathers was twice left for dead but survived. And this, is, this is him recounting his story of being left for dead. I started taking up climbing in response to a crushing depression that began in my mid-30s. I was as strong as any 49-year-old amateur mountaineer can expect to be and was hell-bent on testing myself against the ultimate challenge. On the evening of May 10, 1996, our party set out to complete the final 3,000-foot journey to the top of Mount Everest. I discovered with deep annoyance that I couldn't see properly because the previous year I had a cornea cornea surgery and at this altitude, at this altitude, your cornea in your eye, if it's been surgically repaired, it flattens, rendering you virtually blind in poor light. After scratching my cornea with with a, after scratching my cornea with an ice-crusted glove, I had to remain on the balcony about 1,500 feet below the summit. A member of my party, Mike, used a rope to stabilize me as we, as we began our descent, me almost completely blind. Three times we lost our footing and had to jam our ice axes into the hill to keep from falling. All at once, a blizzard came rushing in and the temperature dropped to negative 60 Celsius, which is negative 76 degrees Fahrenheit. At one point, I lost two of my outer gloves on my right hand, and the skin immediately froze solid. Not a good thing to happen when you're on top of Mount Everest, okay? A group of us huddled like a dog pack to stay awake and alive while the three strongest of our group went for help. The storm subsided on the morning of May 11, when the three Sherpa guides found me buried in the snow. They said they had never seen a living human so close to death. So they determined that I was going to die and that it would endanger more lives to try to bring me back down the mountain, so they left. In Dallas, my wife was told that I was dead. At 4 p.m., a miracle occurred. I opened my eyes. All I could think about was my family. I mustered up all my strength, stood up, and began to inch my way over the uneven ground. Time and time again, I fell, got up, and kept kept my un... Sorry. This is real small writing here. I don't need glasses yet, I don't think. I think my cornea is still doing okay. Time and time again, I, I fell, got up, and kept moving, hour after hour. Finally, 
I caught, I caught blurry sight of a campsite and crept in, my face completely black, my jacket unzipped to my waist, and my bare right arm frozen solid over my head. The men at camp did what they could to bring my body temperature up, but when they radioed base camp, they were, they were told, he's going to die, do not bring him down with you. I heard the others referring to the dead guy and realized they were talking about me. Right, so when other people are like, hey, that dead guy, and you're like, are you talking about me? Am I the dead guy? Is that like my name now? You're like, you're not in good shape, right? <laughs> okay. Um, I don't remember the storm roaring back and filling my tent with snow or being blasted out of my sleeping bag, but that is how I found myself at dawn. When I awoke, only three men remained at camp and were astonished at the sight of me because... I was supposedly dead. When they saw that I could stand, they realized that the dead guy was ready to head down the mountains. We arrived at Camp 2, which had been transformed into a mobile hospital where I was attended to by physicians. I eventually made it home to my family in Dallas. I lost my right eyebrow, which I'm like, that's not that big of a deal, but obviously for for Dr. Weathers it was. He lost his right eyebrow, my big toe, my nose, both my hands, I endured 11 different surgeries to rebuild my face. I had died not once, but twice on that mountain and had come back to life again. I'm a blessed individual. Even better, I know it. As as amazing as an astonishing story that is, something infinitely more profound happens when we entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ and then every day after. As astonishing as it is that that guy would somehow make it down the mountain, survive episodes with death over and over and over again, and the the sheer miracle that the guy was actually able to live after that experience. What Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross and in bringing us to life is a greater miracle, a much more profound miracle that Jesus Christ would come to die for us on a cross, taking our place and our sin upon his body, that when we believe and trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins, we get his righteousness, his perfect obedience, a relationship with the Father. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. That not only affects us on the day of our salvation, but every single day that follows and on into eternity. That's the miracle. That's unbelievable. And as we read 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is recounting this miracle back to the church again. Now I would remind you, brothers, just going back a couple verses, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all, then then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. 
For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. And I love this because in this passage, he says, look, I'm giving to you something of first importance. You think of everything the Apostle Paul could have shared with the church, any, anything that you'd want to give to a young church, whether it's going to be, hey, foundations of leadership or the way to set up good structures or here's how to raise funds or here's how to build a, a larger congregation of people. Or he's, he, there's a million things the Apostle Paul could have shared with the church first off. This is the matter of first importance. Look, look I want you to know something. This is the, the absolute rock-bottom foundation of everything else that we are going to do as a church. And here's the deal. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified and him raised to life again. That is the rock-bottom, solid foundation that everything else is built upon. That is a matter of first importance. And there isn't really a distant second to that. I mean, that is by far the most important truth for the church then and for us today. That is a matter of first importance. He also goes on in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. You don't have to turn there. But he said this when he opens the book, right? He says, look, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Think about that. Man, look, there is, this church is screwed up. They got problems. Paul's solution, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. I mean, he's laying out, he, he's forsaking everything else and saying, look, I'm betting on this one thing here. Man, all my chips are in on this one truth. There's a million things that we could talk about today, but this is what is most important. And I'm betting everything on it. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what it is. It's of first importance. A couple years ago, actually, okay, it's probably more than a couple years, probably like 10 years ago. When you get older, it just kind of all blends together, right? <laughs> a couple years, decade, ah, whatever, it's all the same. I remember we, we were friends with, a, Michelle and I were friends with another couple who they were getting ready to have... Um, a second child, and so I said, look, before we have our second child, we want to go on a vacation and go scuba diving all week long, every day, multiple times a day, and if you guys will come and babysit our daughter while we do this, we'll pay for you guys to go. We're like, sign us up, man. We'll, we'll watch whoever you want. You know, you guys go scuba diving. We'll, go to, we'll be at the beach with your daughter playing the sand, you know, all that kind of stuff. So we did. We went to Curacao, which is island, you know, just north of South America, and this crystal clear water is beautiful, but on the last day or the day before we left, they said, look, you know, after you guys have watched, the, watched our daughter all week, we're going to pay for you to, to have like this like introduction to scuba class, and you'll be able to go underwater with all the scuba gear on and stuff, right? So we did that. And one of, the, one of the things that you learn about scuba diving just in this brief class that we had is that when you go underwater and you've got this thing in your mouth, you have to keep breathing, all right? It seems, it seems like 
okay, that seems obvious, but here's the deal. When you begin to, when you begin to walk into the water, and we're walking in off the beach, you, the water's coming up, and you have learned your entire life, right? You've learned, we've all learned our entire lives that if you breathe, try to breathe underwater, it won't go well for you, right? We've all learned that from a young age. Do not try to breathe underwater. It will go very poorly for you, okay? So I'm walking into the water, and as I'm walking, I'm like, got to breathe, got to breathe. And as the water's getting higher, and John, I don't know if you, you experienced this when you kind of first went scuba diving. <laughs> I mean, I almost hyperventilated because I was so terrified that my body is like, look, don't, don't breathe underwater. And my mind's like, no, you need to keep breathing or you're going to die. And my body's like, no, stop breathing because you're going to die if you keep breathing underwater. And you got this regulator and I'm just, and I just keep walking and I'm just like freaking out as I'm going and the water's getting deeper and it's just, you know, and I'm like up to, the water's over my head. I'm still just, just, I, I, I'm, I'm really breathing here. I'm really, you know, it's, but here's the thing. It's a first importance. You have to remember to keep breathing. It seems obvious. It can be the same way with the gospel, right? It, it's as if it's too good to be true. It, it's almost, it, it runs counterintuitive to everything that we've learned, right? We've learned that, look, if, if you work hard enough, if you give enough, attend church enough, pray enough, man, you're going to be all right as long as you're a good person. As long as your good outweighs your bad. As long as, as, long as you're someone who is, 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 a, is a good moral person, right? Then you're going to be okay because that's what really matters. The good deeds that you do, the amount of church you attend, the amount of people that you've helped in your life, the amount of money you've given away, the amount of prayers that you've said at the right times, Man, that's what really matters. And it's almost as if we have to continue to tell ourselves, this is a first importance. Keep breathing. Keep going back to this truth of the gospel because something inside of us and the entire world says, look, it's not that easy. You've got to do something. You've got to add something to this truth. Surely it's Jesus is not enough. He's, this is too good to be true. This is, can't possibly be sufficient for all the sin in the world, that his death would somehow make us right with God. That can't be true. It's of first importance. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It makes no sense. It's too good to be true. Jesus Christ in his life and his death and his resurrection for us. Man, it's too much. There's no way. I mean, that's, that news, it, we can't wrap our heads around that. How can that be sufficient for us? That he died, and in my, in my deadness, he brought me back to life again. That I was dead, and he brought me back to life. And surely there is something that I need to do to add to that or supplement that, or help that. People find it so hard to imagine. Newsweek religion editor Kenneth Woodward writes this. Clearly, the cross is what separates the Christ of Christianity from every other Jesus. In Judaism, there is no precedent for a Messiah who dies, much less a criminal as Jesus did. 
In Islam, the story of Jesus' death is rejected as an affront to Allah himself. Hindus can only accept a Jesus who passes into peaceful samadhi, a yogi who escapes the degradation of death. The figure of a crucified Christ, says Buddhist Thich Mat Han, is a very painful image to me. It does not contain joy or peace, and this does not do justice to Jesus. There is, in short, no room in other religions for a Christ who experiences the full burden of mortal existence, and hence, there is no reason to believe in him as the divine son whom the Father resurrects from the dead. That the image of a benign Jesus has a universal appeal should come as no surprise. That, the most, that most of the world cannot accept the Jesus of the cross should not surprise either. The thought of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dying in our place upon a brutal cross seems folly, seems ridiculous. How could that ever be? How could that be the very thing that brings us to life? How could his death bring me to life? How could his death be sufficient for our sins? to bring us back to life. Now, the rest, of this chat, the rest of this section here, as he goes on past detailing the gospel, is he gives a list of names in this section. And what he's doing in this section is saying, look, you don't have to take my word for it. There has been a number of people who have seen the risen Christ and he lists, there's 500 people, there's a 12, there's these guys. And he goes through and he says, look, this is verifiable. I'm not just making this stuff up. There are people that you can go to today to talk to them who've seen Christ risen that will tell you that, yes, he is alive. Because people then struggle with the fact of how could a, a crucified Messiah be our Savior? How could anything come from death to life? That doesn't work that way. But in this... I just want to pull out a couple things in this list of people. And this isn't necessarily his, what he's trying to get at, but I just, this is an observation for us. He names, there, there's this general group of, you know, the 500 and the 12 and some other people, but he names specifically three people, right? The three people that have seen the risen Christ, he names them by name. The first one is Cephas, right? Or Peter, as we know him. Peter's his Greek name who is a disciple of Jesus. He names him. The second person he names is James, okay? James was Jesus' brother, according to Acts, or Acts chapter 1, verse 13, according to Galatians 1, 18 through 19, that is the brother of Jesus. And then lastly, he names himself Paul, the church planter, the missionary. What do these three people have in common? I mean, why, why these three people? Who... Why do they get to get named and the other, like the 12 or the 500? No one else is named except these three guys. Where is there any commonality between these guys? Well, Peter. What do we know about Peter? Denied Jesus three times, didn't he? Right? That moment, they've spent the last three years together, Jesus pouring himself into Peter, trusting Peter, living with Peter, discipling Peter, training Peter, loving him, 
watching over him. And at this moment of Jesus' greatest trial, Peter gets tested. He says, I don't even know the guy. I don't even know who he is. I don't know who you're talking about. I know nothing about the guy. Leave me alone. Completely and utterly denies Jesus Christ that he's ever met him. What about James? Right? James's brother. Well, we know from John chapter 7, verse 5, you don't have to turn there, that his family, his family said, look, we don't believe our little, we don't believe what our big brother's doing. They actually, they came to kind of like say, hey, come back home with us. You're getting a little crazy. We don't believe that our brother could claim to be the Messiah to save the world. As a matter of fact, in Mark 3, I'm going to turn there real quick. In Mark, Mark 3, chapter 21, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 3, verse 21, we read this about Jesus' family. It says this, And when his family heard it, right, so James is part of his family, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. That's James. He's out of his mind. Jesus Christ, our, our brother, he's crazy. He's nuts. He's lost it. This guy has no idea what he's talking about. We need to get him out of here. This is craziness. Then lastly, the Apostle Paul, as he lists it in detail here, persecuted and tried to destroy the church single-handedly. Man, he was, he was on fire to destroy the church, but he was passionate his burning passion was to destroy the name of Jesus. That's what got him up in the morning. That's what kept him fueled all day long was the destruction of the church, trying to wipe the remembrance of Jesus Christ from anyone's memory. So Peter rejects Jesus. James is filled with unbelief. The apostle Paul, or Paul, tries it as, as a zealot, is passionate for destroying the church. And now these guys are the very pillars of the church. These guys wrote scripture for goodness sake, right? I mean, these are the very guys who we would say in our minds, if we saw these guys after Peter's utter and complete failure, after James saying, look, Jesus is out of his mind. We need to rescue him. He's the one who needs rescuing, not us. After the apostle Paul tries to destroy everything that Jesus Christ has done with his own bare hands, we would say there's no hope for these guys because they are dead and they are lost. And there is no hope for these guys. Man, we know people like this in our lives, right? Maybe that was us. Maybe that's a coworker, a family member. We think, man, there's no hope for them. They are dead. They're not going anywhere. Man, they are lost. They, they, they vehemently deny and, and fight against Jesus Christ. They hate what he's done. And God can say, you know what? I can make them a pillar of the church. I can make that guy a standing, a guy who's going to be remembered for all eternity as the greatest church planner and missionary the world's ever known. That's the guy I can, that, that guy that was trying to destroy the church, he's now going to become a church planter, Right? And that guy that did not believe me and tried to say I was out of my mind, he's actually going to write some scripture. Peter, who, who, who said he knew nothing of Jesus Christ, denied knowing him, he is going to be the rock on which I build my church. That's what God 
can do because he brings dead things to life. He brings dead things to life. There are people in our lives who we think, man, they are too far dead. In their deadness, there is no hope for them. Man, they are, they're too far gone. I'm so sorry. They're past the point of, of, of return. Man, my, whether it's my kids or my family or my coworkers or my best friend or my spouse or whatever, no one is beyond the grace and the mercy and the power of Jesus Christ because God brings dead things to life. That is what he does, and man, he does a really good job of it too. I tell you what, he doesn't just kind of let things slide past, man, he changes things. Man, when he breathes life into somebody, man, there is no going back. That is what God has done. I want, I want to just invite Cameron up and Cameron's just going to share his testimony with us. And I think this just further emphasizes the point of God bringing dead things to life. Hello. Uh, I'm here to tell you guys God does bring dead things to life. Uh, before I became a Christian, um, it's, it was pretty clear that I was my own God. And I sought after what I wanted and how I wanted it. Uh, but it really just led to my destruction. I mean, the Bible indicates that the wages of sin is death. I mean, I was crumbling. My life was crumbling. Um, and I didn't want anything to do with Jesus. You know, you hear about Jesus growing up, and if you don't grow up in a church, you have these vague ideas of who he is, and, and uh, you know, you're not certain about it because you, you never have experienced who Jesus is, and you never have learned for yourself you just have what people have told you. And he, in a way, he's a threat to who you are because you feel that, you know, if Jesus comes in, he's going to change me, and I don't want to be changed because, uh, you know, I'm, you know I'm, I have things figured out. But the truth of the matter is, you know, I was indebted, to, I was enslaved to sin, and sin controlled me. And, and um, one thing was really clear, um, that my life was just in, in shambles. Um, to put it mildly, I mean, I suffered uh, deep addiction to, to drugs, alcohol, and um, and selfishness. I mean, I was I was I was I had the pinnacle sin of pride that just ruled my life, and um, I have some notes because I didn't want to forget anything. Uh, so in John 7, 37, uh, um, a, a poignant part of who Jesus is really jumped out at me. Um, a friend of mine who I uh, came to be friends with through, um, through sin one day came up to me and said, hey, you know what? My uncle, or my, sorry, my grandfather just gave me a Bible. You want to read it? And it was interesting because at any point before that, I would have vehemently rejected such a statement because, uh, but I was at a point, it was a unique point in my life that, um, you know, 
I was open to it because of uh, the situation. So we started reading. And he, he wasn't a Christian, right? He, no, no, no. He wasn't a Christian either. So it wasn't like he was trying to reach out to you or something like that. No, no. He was, he was you know, you know, he he was giving me mushrooms and packing my bowls to smoke and, yeah. you know. Yeah. So definitely, definitely not, you know, <laughs> uh, a Christian. So uh, we started reading because, you know, what do you got to lose? I uh, might as well figure it out uh, what this is about. And we we worked through John. And in John 7.37, it says... Uh, pretty clear he said on the last day of the feast on uh, on the great day jesus stood up and cried out he he stood up this man jesus stood up and cried out like that sounds radical who well, who just stands up and cries out at a big feast I'm like who is this guy and, you know whoever believes in me as the scripture has said out of his heart flows uh, rivers of living water and i mean it really kind of uh, struck me. It's like, this man, there's no one like that man. Uh, and even in verse 40, 45, it says, when the, when the Pharisees asked, you know, did, why didn't you bring Jesus to us? Even the officers were like, no one speaks like this man. Um, and just, you know, over Scripture, over reading John, and, and then we started moving to the epistles, you know, it became more clear who Jesus was, who I was. It, you know, matters like life and death and sin uh, started started to come together, and it was just really clear that you know what, no, there's these ideas I've never even thought of, and my life was missing something, and and now these pieces are coming together, and then I think the pinnacle statement, you know, at the very end of of Revelation, right after God sends Satan, you know into destruction and and conquers death, conquers sin, you know, it says that the new Jerusalem and God is descending from heaven, right? At the at the crescendo of John's vision, God's coming down and Jesus is is sitting on a throne and the new Jerusalem is descending. And like in a way he like whispers to John, he says, you know, behold, I make all things new. All things are new. Hmm. And I thought you know, this is a God who promises—he he promises to make everything new. He promises to transform my life and and save me from from sin. And I mean, it's it's just so clear to me now what was impossible for me to understand before—that God's made all things new in my life, and that who I was has been transformed, you know, from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really good. I mean, yeah. we as a society, just so Johnny never invites me up here again, uh, <laughs> we as a society always put this, you know, the political candidates, all, none of them can do what pro- Jesus is promising to do. It's so radically different. Yeah. You know, they're promising to reform our society in certain ways. I mean, it means nothing with sin still in the world. Yeah. It means nothing. Yeah. So... Amen. Uh, yeah, that's it, Johnny. Thanks, Cameron. Appreciate it. Thank you. You know, I love about that testimony is that as Cameron and I were talking, he said there came a point when he's reading the Bible with his buddy, and he said, and we just believed it. They weren't in church. They weren't 
there was nobody there explaining things to him or discipling him along or trying to reach out to him or anything like that. They're just a couple of guys smoking pot reading the Bible, right? <laughs> and they said they, they, they got to this point as they read through the Gospels that he says, and I just believed it. And he came to new life. He came to new life. God brings dead things to life. And that's a perfect camera. Thank you for sharing that with us. We appreciate that. Thanks for your honesty, willingness to do that. We're, we're going to, as we close, I want to just make a, an offer as we, as we close. If there are areas in your own life, or maybe you've never trusted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that today can be the day of salvation that God can bring dead things to life this morning. It doesn't have to be a church service. We're all gathered. It doesn't have to be that, but it can be. And so if you've never entrusted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and believed upon him in his death and his resurrection, that today can be the day of salvation. But if there's areas in your life as well where you think, man, I'm just, I'm fighting for faith. I mean, I know that God brings dead things to life, but it's still hard for me to believe. There's still, there's still areas of brokenness in my life and relationships that are, that are destructive and, and people that I think, man, there's too far gone. We'd love just to pray with you, stand with you in that. We believe that God is a great God and he's able to reach and bring dead things to life that in our minds we think are way too far gone. If you would have listed these three guys and we would have thrown them out there and said, look, these are the guys, everyone would have agreed, like, these guys are not going to be pillars of the church and write scripture. Not going to happen. But here they are, God taking, taking out of the, the, the rubble, the ashes, the, the brokenness, and doing amazing, beautiful things that only God can do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, God, we surrender to you. I surrender to you my unbelief. God, we surrender to you our unbelief. Lord, there are people in our lives, Lord, maybe it's even us, where we think, God, too far gone. I've made too much of a mess. Lord, I've denied you too many times. I've, 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 I've thought this was craziness. God, I surrender to you. Help me, Lord. God, help us. Give us faith to believe. Lord, that the good news that transforms and changes the Corinthian church within, that then went on to change the world, God could also change my life, change the people in my life. God, help us. Help us to believe. Help me to believe. Thank you, Jesus, that you bring dead things to life. Amen.